Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast, recorded for the first week of June 2020. Hope everybody's doing good. I got a cup of coffee made over here. I'm hanging out at my studio desk and trying to get a couple minutes of recording in to, to make a post up today. But I hope everybody's been doing well. Been uh, hanging in there through the lockdown reopenings. Been hanging in there through the, the protests that have started up. A lot of news and stuff going on, a lot of pictures and stuff, a lot of new images from uh, all the different uh, all the different media sources. The either the the press photographers, like the AP press photographers, or or really and more impressively, all the uh, the cell phone footage that's been captured just in the last two weeks or so has been uh, really surprising. I think it's uh, it's going to go down in history as sort of an interesting event, sort of similar to how, well, what am I saying here even? Um, just as, as media progresses and now the proliferation of everyone having a camera in their pocket is sort of what's uh, created a, a revolutionary uh, moment in a sense, you know, where we get to have a lot of information captured not only from uh, from specific media sources like an AP press photographer, but also a 17-year-old girl gets to record a video and send that out. And that piece of media captures a moment that has a huge influence on a huge part of the culture. And I think that's one of the, the systems that uh, that maybe hadn't been foreseen before in uh, in the the way that media works and that the way that media spreads messages um, through the world. But I was kind of thinking about... Well, how would we say it? So, um, so just in the last couple of weeks, given that everyone now has a phone and uh, and some way to capture media, we've had all sorts of instances of these uh, these kind of specific, um, well, I guess let's say police brutality uh, circumstances uh, and murders that have happened that have been captured on video and and on photographs and uh you have just like different i don't know different tear gassings of protesters different uh, peaceful protesters being attacked different um rioters being exposed for the crimes that they're committing um and so it's really interesting to see like how fast we can get these pieces of media i was thinking in in reference to maybe something like 911 when um when we really just first started having uh digital media on the ground for recording you know i think that's one of the first events where we had VHS uh, like tape footage just from from someone who had a camera on them when the event had happened. I think that's like a, a the, one of the videos from 9/11 we saw again and again after the the buildings fell of of this camera kind of running away through the, the cloud of dust that was there. Really intense footage. <clears throat> I also remember looking up that uh, photojournalists back in 2001 had just started using a Canon D30, which I think was their very first. Uh, I think their very first a digital camera that was uh, put out into newsrooms. So even for 2001, for September 11th, 2001, a lot of the media was created on film, and a lot of the media was created on you know like VHS tape or or like really low megapixel, uh, like three mega may, maybe three or two megapixel uh, cameras back then. Uh, so I, I thought that was really interesting. I mean, I think it was like another year or another like, or maybe the, I think the Nikon D1 had just come out, which I'd probably talked about on this podcast before. That was like one of the first cameras. So there's really only a couple, 
uh, digital photography options back then, the idea of cell phone videos, you know, I mean, imagine what that kind of event would have been like if every single person had uh, a feed of video that, that had been uploaded or recorded on the day of an event like that. So that's what's really interesting about kind of the changes in those events as we kind of progress through history. Um, but I was also thinking back to like Vietnam, too, where uh, there was a lot of... Uh, Video, well, I guess the Vietnam era, maybe the era of the 60s, the era of the, the, the protests and the riots that had gone on uh, to end Vietnam now and uh, to get the Civil Rights Bill passed. Uh, there's a lot of media created around that that we still see in history books now, but uh, a significant amount of that media was really all created by the press at the time. And that's sort of the divergence that we're seeing now is that instead of uh, sort of a, an edited message that was represented by the press, we're seeing an unedited message that's developed and created and shared by a wide population of people across the United States. And then it's sort of edited through the crowd and then edited through the links that you receive. And, and really even still, that's probably a, a manipulation on the, the total amount of information available. But uh, it's, it's just really interesting to see kind of the, the changes in progression in media. I'm not saying it's better now or worse than it was before for the specifically for the 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 application of media to communicate a message to a population um it seemed like you know i don't it's it's just interesting to analyze i guess kind of the types of things that are changing um i remember uh i guess kind of first thinking about this with the 2000 well maybe i don't know probably not the first time but uh but i was thinking about this again with the, the 2017 eclipse i know it's odd to try and compare these two circumstances but uh, historically i started thinking about this idea that uh, when the 2017 All-American Eclipse happened on, I think, what was it, August 21st, maybe, 17th, 2017? It was 2017, so it was probably the 20th? I don't know what it was, but uh, when we had the All-American Eclipse, uh, there were videos and there were uh, great photographs from almost every photographer, every Instagram photographer, every, you know, amateur, prosumer or semi-professional. I have a bunch of photographs from the eclipse that are okay. But everyone was able to capture photographs from all over the country and that's because they all had uh they all had a, a piece of media equipment. And then as you you go back in time um to different eclipses that have happened in the past, you know, I was trying to trying to do that. I was, I was looking up information when that eclipse was coming up. There's really almost no information about the the past cycle of that eclipse. So, you know, I think it was like back in the '90s, and you, so you had like uh, some news reports from France or something. It was this, you know, kind of sh kind of wobbly VHS tape that was uploaded to YouTube. There's a couple photos, like one or two photos from its app. Uh, its appearance in 1945 and it's cool to see a black and white photo of an eclipse but it's like one or two that exist and now there's hundreds of gigabytes of images and uh, different sequences and different different renderings of uh, of how that eclipse progressed and passed and so uh, just kind of seeing that as a, as a macro of it or as a as a polysemic example the the change in time creates a change in the representation of uh, of media and how it's used to uh to show what's going on so i thought that was really interesting but uh but we're definitely seeing that now we're just in the last 15 days we probably have more coverage and more um media evidence of uh of things that we were interested in than we probably ever had before for a uh, a significant newsworthy event like this so i think it's all been uh i don't know it's kind of interesting to to see and uh, kind of see that that sort of stuff but we'll, it'll be interesting to Really, it'll be interesting to see how it progresses over the next weeks. I think this is one of the 
Well, everything seems like it's the first time as you kind of continue moving in toward the toward the future. But it seems like it's one of the first times that uh, it's happened this way. I got to move the mic a little bit. Up the stand. There we go. Um, let's see. The other pieces I was going to talk about today. I've been working in the studio still. I've been working with Logic Pro 10. Sharp left turn. Um, <laughs> working with some audio uh, production software. Logic Pro 10. Recorded a bunch on that idea during the last podcast. And uh, really still, yeah, enjoying Logic Pro 10 quite a bit. It's pretty fun to, uh, to be working with. Um, what, what is it about it that I like? Well, really, I think a big part of it is all of the, the free loops and sounds that you get. There's a lot of other programs out there and a lot of other, other applications that have software instruments that you can apply or loop packages that you can download. Um, so those are certainly available to a lot of producers. But a real uh, positive convenience about Logic is that you can download uh, nearly 70 gigabytes of a sound library just for free that's available sort of with the program without doing any additional or extra steps. And uh, so that's uh, a part of it that I think is a, a cool advantage. Um, but uh, so yeah, I've been just going through and messing with those loops, been trying to check out the live loops dashboard and, uh, or I don't know if it's a dashboard, but uh, trying to look at the, the live loops tool of how you can kind of throw in loops to this, uh, this grid and then trigger them in sequences. Um, so it's been fun to, to check out while I've been uh, been trying to do some some guitar stuff. Really just, <clears throat> pardon me, um, really just uh, kind of regular practice stuff is all I'm up to. But uh, it's cool. There's a couple amp modelers that you can get into when you, you have your guitar plugged into an interface into the computer. And uh, yeah, it's a great uh, great system to, to do it with. I've been trying to master, is it called mastering? <laughs> if you're doing it this way. I've been trying to... Uh, produce out the podcast using Logic Pro uh, for at least the last one. And then I did some editing uh, on a couple others. But uh, but yeah, I've been trying to, to go through and, and sort of learn how I could, uh, could use Logic Pro to do the production of the podcast stuff, um, which kind of goes up and down. I mean, so I'm recording, I've said many, probably many times, recording into an H4n, which has, uh, which has good preamps for, um, for, for, vocals. Uh, I think, you know, like part of the tonal quality of how a microphone ends up picking up the sound, I think is part of the preamp power that's supplied to the way that the microphone picks up the information. I don't know how, how it's recorded. There's something about that. I guess what it comes down to is sort of the, 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 I don't know, the quality of the sound that you're hearing. Um, so it sounds really quite good and natural just coming through as it is. I've used other systems before that uh, that is not the case. It sounds really tinny or really th really thick and muddy or ugh, just I don't know, some weird digital noise that's in there. Um, a lot of a lot of problems and stuff that I've had to try and overcorrect in the past. Uh, <laughs> but so this is okay. So when I throw into the logic, I don't have a ton of things to do, but I do try and set uh, a track uh, like a channel strip with a few different effects features applied to it so that it kind of adjusts the audio enough to, to make it, I guess, a little bit more suitable for listening to in a podcast. Most of that is adding a compressor in a stack. So, so I have the, the voice compression, so really loud things and really quiet things are, are normalized a little bit so that they don't pop and become really loud if you're like hearing it on headphones. You know, it doesn't go from the normal state of voice that my voice is in now to some other really high loudness all of a sudden. 
um, have an equalizer on there to get rid of a couple odd room tone frequencies. I think there's a like a uh, like a high pass or this is this little uh, filter pass that you can do where you, you kind of you pull up a piece of the EQ really high and sweep it across your spectrum and then you find this frequency. And it's probably like two or three that are just sort of these weird warbly high pitched tones that can be in there and uh, and you can kind of drop those out with the EQ and that uh, really it kind of changes you wouldn't almost notice it if you were just listening to the full mix you'd think well I can't hear that sound but really you can in some way it's this sort of agitating um, bad sound that you also hear along with everything else um, so going through and uh, yeah doing some EQ doing some stuff to the the low end of the EQ uh, which is kind of fun to mess around with and I've been watching some YouTube tutorials about vocal production and how different producers go through their uh they're working with compressing and mastering and, and mixing um vocals and uh, i was uh, i was looking up radio production stuff which is okay a lot of those a lot of those searches sort of end in uh, some some dopey guy kind of talking i mean what what are you listening to right now um some dopey guy kind of talking about sound in a way that you can't really apply sorry uh but uh but when i was uh, checking out things that were a little bit more helpful i was looking up uh hip-hop vocal production mixes um because that's sort of a spoken word technique uh, some of the eqing and compression compression ideas uh, are sort of a little bit more relevant than they are for like a vocal singer um and i guess like i mean that's it's kind of obvious, but uh, but I think it's it's a little bit more of just uh, mixing to the the volume and loudness of, um, of of sort of what it is. So yeah, it's cool. Learn a little bit about how to add some different effects to the audio. Uh, what is it the the channel that I'm working with? Um, so I have a, a deesser placed on it to get rid of some of the s s s s sounds. I don't even know if you can hear it. Maybe it deesed it all. I'm sure it didn't. Um, but uh, there, oh, and also, I think, a, what is it, like an echo? Or not an echo, a reverb effect that's on there. And I think that's supposed to be like a dry and wet mix. It's supposed to add like a little bit more space to the sound. Sometimes it could be a little too flat or, I guess, dry sounding. And so you're supposed to add, add a little reverb to it to make it feel like it's in a more natural room space than, uh, than like a, a quiet box or something. I also put a noise gate on there so that... Any sound under like a certain level will be uh, cut out and uh, stripped away, so that there's not any like uh, distracting lower hums or buzzes or something like that. <laughs> I remember on my first podcast, I think uh, I was running like an analog input into the computer to record, and my first first podcast, like back in 2009, and there was always this like kind of I don't know this low ground hum, this that would be floating on in the background, and it was annoying, um, <laughs> but I think I'd apply like a pretty aggressive noise gate to try and chop it out, and uh, it just sounded way overprocessed. Shoot, uh, so <laughs> kind of the the live and learn part of it, but uh, I wish I did a little more learning of it. Uh, so <laughs> I uh, I have this channel stack. I've been working in Logic Pro. I've been uh, trying to figure out the mixing stuff. I'm kind of tweaking it here and there, and, and uh, just kind of having fun with some of the music production stuff that you can do. I'm looking at this uh, controller. There's different types of MIDI controllers out there. A lot of the time when you start talk about a MIDI controller, you're talking about like a, a keyboard uh, or, you know, like a piano keyboard kind of a thing. But not a piano, just a controller, they call it, because uh, it doesn't have any sounds in it. A piano has uh, strings and hammers that, you know, it's, it's sort of a physical operation. It's triggering an actual harmonic uh, sound to occur in real space with a controller. 
it's it's it, it's just it's just buttons, you know. And then uh, the computer processes those MIDI sounds to play back uh, a sample or a, a generated tone of some sort. So I uh, have this uh, this M Audio twenty five key keyboard. Uh, which is a MIDI controller that I have plugged into the computer to do to do some stuff with it, but uh, but really that's just uh, that's just like a a MIDI instrument that's plugged in. Really cool and great for the the music production stuff that someone might want to do. But uh, this other type of controller that I'm looking at is uh, a little separate from what like a DJ controller would be. Maybe you've you've seen those of kind of the pads or the scratch pads or the the sort of uh, you know the mix fade in and out or whatever that kind of stuff is. There's those DJ controllers, but this one is. Uh, is more like a, a digital console. Uh, so it's, a, I think, an eight-channel mixer is really what it looks like with a, a ninth-channel master. And instead of having, like, outputs, like, you know, sends and outputs for, for quarter-inch jacks on the top to go to analog equipment, it's really just a controller that drives MIDI information through USB into, into Logic or into, uh, you know, other digital audio workstations and then allows you to control those uh, knobs and features of your digital audio workstation through the controller. Uh, so it's really cool. So, you know, you slide, you're, you're going to mix something. So you want to slide the mix of channel one up to a higher volume, but you want to take channel three down a little bit. You can do that physically just on these uh, on these sliders that are there, and then you can you know punch in for a record or uh, or you know arm for record or select or mute or whatever it is. Uh, and then there's a number of different uh, kind of control features and knobs on the sides where you can get into some of the things. So, been looking at these controllers, uh, looking at a, an X Touch Baron or what is it? It's made by Behringer, and it's an X Touch Compact uh, is, is one of the ones I was looking at. There's an X Touch One. Uh, and I think just the general X touch is like a you know like a full sized uh, like digital console space. It'd take up most of a desk to have. It's really it's like a and there's a mini out there too, which I think you can you can throw in a laptop bag. Cool that those options exist out there. And uh, and yeah, it definitely seems like it'd be uh, kind of interesting for music producers to try and use. But I was also looking at some of the things that you can do with it in Lightroom too. So this um, these controllers you can have. MIDI signals run into the computer to trigger different keyboard commands or different uh, clicks and stuff. So I guess what you can do, and there's been some softwares made for it over the last uh, last couple of years that uh, that do Lightroom control. So you can have a controller like this and turn a knob, and then that knob will respond to a fader or you know one of those sliders that exists in the develop module of Lightroom. So you want to uh, turn up the change the white balance of a photo well you have a slider for your white balance you can, or, or a rocker or something you can turn it up or down or you have a slider that can go to a high exposure or low exposure or change your brightness or hues or adjust your blacks or your tone curves um, you have access to that of course all on the screen but you also have controls of that in physical spaces buttons mapped to that controller through the software. I think a couple of the pieces of software that I've seen are MIDI to Lightroom, or pardon, MIDI to LR, I think is what it's titled as, uh, which I'm sure you could search. There's a, there's a paid software called P-Fixer that exists out there that... I have that has a free trial. You should try it out if you're interested. And then there's another software called LR Control. And I think that's also another piece of paid software that you can get. 
a free trial for. There's a few videos online that kind of express how some of these uh, mixing pieces go, but really I don't think there are that many videos that describe how you know mixing with a an like an X touch or mixing with some kind of a MIDI controller for photos in Lightroom really works. There's some stuff like you know there's a couple a couple guys kind of going around and, and tweaking some photos. So you get the general idea of what it is uh and I guess that's really enough. I mean, you know how to edit the photos, but uh but yeah, it's kind of interesting to see how the controllers uh plug into it. I heard it helps with productivity and workflow. I've also seen plenty of professional photography, you know, like it's not like every every top photography studio is implementing a controller and that's why they're getting better at editing. I think they're hiring an editor. Is that what they're doing? I need to learn about uh, sort of that higher end of stuff, but uh, I swear sometimes, of course, there's a lot of the uh, the bespoke journeyman photographers that uh, they just sort of work and do all the work and then build a package and send it out. But there's also a lot of photographers working in commercial markets or wedding markets too that. Uh, that uh, shoot a bunch of photos and then have a number of editors go through the library and they'll they'll do editing, color editing and stuff, but they'll also do more tedious tasks like keywording or uh, like metadata description editing or something, you know, where they, they go through and, uh, and make a bunch of changes or a bunch of log lines to, uh, to have uh, liner notes inserted into the metadata of a photograph. Uh, interesting as a process, but yeah, I've seen like, you know, a couple interns hired in a photography studio just to work on... Ta- you know, tagging and logging and keywording stuff, um, which uh, I don't want to do. I don't do that in my Lightroom catalog at all. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, like, a, I don't know, to, to the whatever degree I need, but it's like in a collection or something. Um, so I've seen that. But I've also seen really talented visual editors, you know, where their training is like, is just to use Photoshop to apply sharpening. You go, oh, man, wow, that's what you do? is just use Photoshop at a really high level to add multiple layer effects into a channel so that you can apply a type of sharpening to the pixels that we don't really understand or use. I mean, I'm sure it's quite good as just the slider in Lightroom, but apparently for these professional magazine layout photos, they go through a couple passes of of pretty high-end old-school guys that go through and do specific types of sharpening modifications to the way that the, the photographs look, especially, I think, if the photographs are being enlarged to a, to a great degree. You know, if you're thinking about a billboard, but you're thinking about, you're thinking about the physical size of a 35-millimeter piece of film, um, is that what it is? 36? 35? What is it? I'm not sure, but if you think about it, just like a, a frame, like a film frame, it's just, you know, a small little block. And then you think about that stretched out to cover an entire billboard or even just something on TV. I think they have to do a lot of uh, image manipulation to, uh, what do they call it? Interpolate? To interpolate enough pixels to create out of nothing enough pixels uh, to make it so that the resolution of an image can actually exist as something that large. And I think there used to be some uh, some pretty specific processes in place for art directors to send those photographs through to get them uh, appropriately edited for print in a magazine. And so all that sort of stuff has kind of gone out the window now, and, and now it's just sort of, uh, you know, juice the photo up in an editor to make it look cool to get it out online or to get it into a book or something. So 
maybe it'll seem uh, regrettable in the future that that was sort of the case with a lot of the, the images, but also probably not. I think it'll be be fine. It'd be cool to get be cool to get a pro editor on board, but I figure. I figure that's sort of a way of the past, you know. I think I talked before about different different ways of the past that uh, that like film photography had gone, where there was stock photo sessions where you could just take pictures of a a corral of horses. You know, thirty photographers would take a picture of a corral of horses, and they they'd all sell that in a calendar and make you know make ten grand for the year. <laughs> Those days are over. I don't think that's happening anymore. As is the idea of uh, hiring a, a full time image editor to do a professional color gradation on your images. I think that'll just be up to me now. So I guess that's probably a lot of the stuff that I'll talk about on uh, on this episode of the podcast. Thanks a lot for checking it out. Hope you guys check out some stuff on billynewmanphoto.com. A few new things up there, some stuff on the homepage, some good links to uh, other other outbound sources, some, some links to books, some links to some podcasts, links to some blog posts, all pretty cool. Yeah, check it out at billynewmanaphoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.